1: Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Revenue Rehab. I am your host, Brandi Starr, and we have a truly amazing episode for you today. I am joined by the Tegrita Executive Leadership Team, Mike Geller. Raleigh Keenan and Max Stoddard. Uh, Mike is our co-founder and is the firm's principal technologist. Mike graduated from the famed Toronto Metropolitan University and wasted no time in building a 20-year career covering all angles of marketing technology consultancy. Raleigh is a born leader and the key growth strategist at Tegreta as our CRO. Raleigh brings 25 years of diverse experience at the likes of LinkedIn, Oracle, Gallup, and the U.S. Olympic volleyball teams. Graduating with his MBA in marketing from Northwestern University, Kellogg School of Management, Raleigh has some unique experience in his career, including making over 500,000 cold calls max is our chief of staff and is passionate about enabling growth and success max loves seeing anything run smoothly and people achieve more because of her contributions max has spent most of her career working for startups within established companies embarking on uh, something new and in a traditional industries amid disruption she has mentored many colleagues and has helped others build their careers mike Raleigh, Max, welcome to Revenue Rehab. Your session begins now. Thank you. Uh, So excited to have you all. I think, uh, you know, it's always great when we can get our executive team together. Um, And I'll tell you guys why I brought you all here shortly, but you know I like to break the ice with a little woo-saw moment I call buzzword banishment. So, Mike, I'll start with you. What buzzword would you like to get rid of forever?
2: Uh, I'd like to get rid of um, taking things offline. Everything Ah. gets taken offline, even though it stays online, just elsewhere.
1: Yeah, because we pretty much do everything online. (laughs) So, okay, we won't take anything offline for today's conversation. Uh, Raleigh, what about you?
3: Mine has uh, become a buzzword, which is why it bothers me, and that is the word diversity uh, that people throw around and uh, use it in place of uh, uh, accurate, precise wording. They just throw it around um, as a way to sort of show that they're thinking about others or something, so I, that bugs me when people use, constantly use it in the wrong way.
1: Yeah, I'd say that is one that is probably most often used incorrectly. Uh, <laughs> and Max, what about you? Which word are we putting in the
0: box? I was totally going to say diversity. So now I have to pick something <laughs> No way. I was. <laughs> so for slightly different reasons, but I'm going to throw in quiet quitting. And it's not because of that phrase, but because of all it entails of the idea that uh, people need to have a mindset towards Almost quitting to have a job that doesn't demand too much of their lives from them. So, uh,
1: yes. And uh, so we are going to take diversity, quiet quitting, and taking things offline, and we will put them in the box um, and we will not use those terms uh, at least for the next 30 minutes or so. So, now that we've gotten that off our chest, um, I asked you guys here because it is our 10th anniversary. Uh, I feel like I should have some, you know, some streamers or some confetti, but then I'd have to clean that up. Um, and so thinking about so I've been here nine years uh, coming up on my or my ninth anniversary in a couple months. Um, and so most of the company's history and I look at how we have evolved. And it's pretty remarkable how, you know, what we have done as such a small organization without taking on outside investment um, in growing the business and making Tegrita a great place to work. And so I wanted to have you all here because as I, you know, network and talk to other revenue leaders, there's so many times where we're not talking about the actual practice of doing marketing or sales or any of the revenue functions, a lot of the challenges that revenue leaders are seeing really are around growing the business, managing their teams, being leaders, being fair, trying to think about others and and be good humans. And, And there's so much of that that we have incorporated in our business. I want for our 10 year anniversary as a way to give back to our community to share some of those lessons. Um, So really excited. Uh, And as you guys know, I always believe in setting intentions. It gives us focus and it gives us purpose. And so I'd love to hear from each of you what you would like our audience to take away from this discussion today. Um, And I'll let you guys, whoever's got the first answer, you can jump in uh, with what your thoughts are.
2: I guess I'll go first. Um, uh, I, I would say that uh, things are usually a journey rather than a single action uh, to a solution. It, it's usually a, uh, a series of steps that, you know, may take months or years before you see the result that you want. And it's those sorts of incremental things that um, kind of get you to where you want to go. So it's not just one thing um it's it's everything adding up that that would be my takeaway
0: okay yeah i can kind of build on that where i would say that um i think a lot of places especially you know small companies starting out sometimes they succeed by accident or even in spite of themselves but that the key for winning on purpose is the magic of the four of us, of having a team that is dedicated directionally and uh, ethically to the same ideals and that has a variety of strengths and experience to get there in that is willing and willingness to like fight for when you're like, no, I'm sure about this <laughs> um, at the same time, willing to, to listen. So there, when there's a team that is uh, sharing a, a North star, that makes the difference.
1: And Raleigh. Yeah,
3: I'll, I'll say what I would love the takeaway to be would be for anyone listening to consider that there is another option other than growing at all costs.
1: Yeah, and I'll piggyback on that, um, is that you can grow and keep your conscious. Um, because I do think that that growth at all cost, some of the hard decisions that people have to make that are truly just in the best interests of the business, With no regard to all the humans, you know, so many different things that we see that, you know, people don't always go to sleep at night with a real clear conscience in a lot of companies. And I think that is one thing that I have always been most proud of is even when we've had to make tough decisions, I've never lost a night of sleep because my conscience was not clear about a decision. And You know, we, it's a lot of cynicism, uh, especially in in corporate America right now, and just giving people some of that hope that you can have a leadership team that can lead and grow a business and still, you know, going to your point, be ethical and purposeful and think about the people. Um, So, Mike, I want to start with you in just where Tegrita came from in you know, when you started the company, what did you hope this organization would be?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so it, it, it's a little bit of a sort of two-stage situation because, you know, I, I started sort of my Gellerworks before that. And then working with my co-founder, Karem, at the time, we, we created Tegrita. And we created it because we wanted to build a consultancy that's based on the principle of integrity, you know, meaning so that's where integrity comes from, uh, because we didn't see that uh, a lot in the consulting space. Um, so you know that that you know we wanted to have a consultancy that people would um, not feel. Um, kind of locked in by we wanted to share knowledge, we wanted to enable uh, all the clients that we worked with uh, to do more, um, kind of uh, stemming from the belief that the more you give, the more you have to give.
1: Yeah, I, I echo that. And I can remember uh, when I started, uh, both you and Karim would always echo the statements, be fair to yourself, be fair to the client, be fair to the company, and just really thinking about things holistically and doing what's right by everyone and not necessarily what is most profitable. Um, and so, you know, I think about Tegrita in different evolutions of, you know, Tegrita 1.0 is where the, the company started. and Uh, When I joined, we started to grow a little bit and I kind of called that 2.0. And then, you know, Raleigh came on shortly thereafter and then Max. And, you know, if I look back when Raleigh started, we're a whole different company now. And so that's really where I want to focus less on the early years and more on the last four or five years, because I think that that's where a lot of our key lessons and growth have come from. Um, and so I want to start with talking about what we sell and who we sell to, because this is something that I think a lot of companies as they grow, they start off with a product or service that they want to get into the markets. They have their ICP, you know, their service offering or product offering. And then there is a growth point where I think some people kind of go off the rails. Um, you see this a lot in tech where you start stuffing in this feature and that feature, and we wanna be everything to everybody to the point where you see some technologies that will lose market share by trying to expand too broad, too fast, et cetera. And so um, I, I wanna start Raleigh with you, because I remember when you joined the organization, you spent a good deal of time really assessing where we were And how the business was run primarily from a revenue perspective, but I think you kind of looked at everything holistically. And Mm -hmm. so thinking about what we sell and how that has evolved, because you've been a huge influence in, you know, we need to be putting this out there. We need to market this expertise. Like what's been your takeaway or what was your thought process from when you started to how you've helped to drive the organization around, you know, what we're selling today. Cause at the end of the day, we are, we've always sold ours. Uh, You know, that hasn't changed. That'll never change, but how we've gone to market is, is really different. So I want to start with you there around the, what we sell.
3: Sure. Well, um, to put some, some more context around what you just described when I came into the business, my sort of core background, even before I was formally one, my core background formally as a research consultant, meaning I'm not the kind of consultant that comes in and says, well, I know because I've been in this business and I know how to do this and this is how it works. Uh, my first step is I interviewed everybody in the business and wanted to understand, you know, what they're doing, what's going well, what's not. And what do they want to be doing, and what's in the way of them getting to do that? And um, so I started there to understand the business in general, because at, on the surface we were an Elqua consulting business, um, which spreads into other things. But that's that's not enough. I wanted to know what we were doing, and what I came what came out of that, if you guys remember, is. I felt like we had a much higher-end group of people. So we had skills and talent and interest in doing things well beyond a single platform. And so I kind of came out of that as, um, I don't think we should have a sales team because that seems like a better fit for lower-end work. Uh, I want strategists. I want folks that have, selling talent and um and have them be a lead in strategy for clients i think clients would like that better in terms of what we're doing and so i felt like even before we did it i felt like what we were selling was technical expertise around revenue um call that marketing call that sales but a lot of technical knowledge expertise around Platforms for sure, but also process um, and people, you know, some of the work we were doing kind of leaned that way. Uh, And so it it evolved. And of course, we're doing way more than Eloqua now. Um, And I but I felt like that was a natural progression uh, from what who was on the team, what we were doing and what everyone was interested in doing.
1: Anybody have anything they want to add to that? Um, I think, you know, the lesson that I take away from that, Raleigh, is sort of the opposite of how most companies drive their product or service offering. Um, You know, a lot of the experts all focus on looking at the market and figuring out where in the market you want to play, like, and build your product or your service to meet that market demand of where you want to be. And what we've done and, you know, a lot largely from the way that you've driven us is exactly what you said in, you know, there obviously has to be a market need, like that is kind of a given, but you talked about focusing on the skills, talents, and interest of the people within the organization. And so it really is that tapping into where are you strongest and then figuring out where that fits in the market versus what other people typically do is they pick a place in the market that they wanna be or that they wanna grow into. And one thing that I know that we have consistently done is let our clients drive our service offering. So not just the addressable market, but the people who already are happily working with us and then also letting our team who is seeing what we're doing seeing what their own interests are where you know we can grow letting both of those things come together to create where that fit is and where we grow and i think that's a key lesson especially like for those that are in product marketing and you know people who are driving what a company's offering is there's an opportunity to sort of flip that process on its head and look internally first to figure out where you have the greatest potential to grow.
3: Yeah. And I think just as a quick comparison, um, if you think about firms that take outside investment, uh, that tends to drive toward um, managing the the financial health of the business and that's it. So it'll help the financial health if we get into this market. So let's invest, get some salespeople, do some marketing. So, and you feel that when you, when it's a lot very active in SaaS. And so you feel that, like we just bought a SaaS platform at Tegredo. We just bought one to use for for some of what we're doing in, in the selling of, of our work. And you can tell, like the people that are talking to us don't know anything about the, the what their product is meant for they kind of know some features and facts and, and it's like, okay, so it's not like a business that'll last. It's a business being built to be sold. And so it's a a really different scenario. You know, I didn't, if, if Mike, you know, I left it out, but one of my elements, I don't know if you guys remember this was I got to interview everybody. I also need to see where the founder wants to go. So if Mike was like, I want to exit, I want to get out of this then I would have done something different in terms of growing the business. And, and I wouldn't have cared so much about what are people interested in? Like, well, who cares? We're not going to really have a job in, at the end of this, <laughs> right? Like, but that we're building a, a company to, to, to last. And that's a different underlying um, motivation.
1: And I think that's another really key point like in a number of ep- episodes on revenue rehab we have talked about career progression as an executive and you know where you want to go next and um how you choose you know whether you want to we did one episode with Jen Steele on working with PE firms and whether that's right for you and you know if you want to go fractional or all these sort of different things and i think you hit on a key question as you are choosing a role, is to understand where the founder of an organization or the CEO, if it's a larger company or the board, like where do they wanna go? Because to your point, it does drive the business decisions and it drives the success of our executives. And Max, I wanna kind of turn this question to you because I know when you joined the mission of Tegrita, The direction that Mike wanted the organization to go, to go, the fact that we are not a grow at all costs, like that was important to you to where you made some individual sacrifices in order to take this role. And so thinking about those executives who are always trying to navigate their career and figure out what's the right next step, I'd love to hear your perspective on how those things impacted your desire to be a part of this executive team.
0: Yeah, I think um, my decision was grounded in the advice I give anyone who's thinking about a career transition. And I think ultimately what we try to offer our team and that's, I think about how I want to live and how work will fit with that and not about what I want to do. And how I want to live fit with Tegrita. I didn't want to live going to an office every day where what I wore and how I looked was as important as my, the quality of my work, um, or being present at certain hours was more important than other measures of dedication. That was all of that was more important to me than money. Cause I did take a pay cut to join Tegrita. So Tegrita fit, um, It's what we talk about a lot in different places, usually for for me, my role in hiring um, of, and I think in my last podcast appearance, I talked about banishing work-life balance because um, work is a necessary part of life. We all have to earn to live for the most part in our North American cultures, right? So um, rather than trying to find a balance, it's how does it fit with how I want to live, what my days look like.
1: Yeah, and I think that's a really key lesson. Like most people go into choosing a role, looking at the salary and the stock options and, you know, all of those, those typical things. And you don't think about how you want to live because, you know, I have no doubt that all of us could technically go somewhere else and make significantly more money. But that also comes with higher stress levels and, a lot more uncertainty around, you know, whether you're still gonna have a job or, you know, whether you like the people that you work with or whether you've got psychological safety and can do the things you're best at, like all of these sorts of things that aren't always thought about. Um, And, you know, that is a really key thing in how you attract talent, but also how you make a decision around your own, you know, your own company.
0: I would boil it down to as well, like we've touched on this in a number of places of uh, what a very typical corporate culture or what office culture is like in North America. Um, And I would say that I kind of would boil it down to, we're not asking anyone to squeeze themselves into that here because we don't require that of ourselves, that we are better for being all the parts of us that get headaches, that have families, that, respond to emergencies that have joys, that have side projects, like those things make us better. And we don't have to squeeze into a narrow definition of what we're supposed to be to be good at our jobs.
1: And I want to come back to the team and hiring in a second. Um, But talking about, you know, creating like founder led organizations, Mike, my question for you is, I know from just hearing some of the woes of, you know, executive counterparts at, at other places, dealing with founders can be very difficult. And, you know, because at the end of the day, the founder, whether their opinion direction makes any sense, they are the founder of the organization and you got to roll with it. And one of the things that I have always admired and appreciated about you is you never... Let the fact that this is your company drive the decisions that you make. And I know I have seen you go with decisions that are best for the business, that are not necessarily, you know, in your best personal interest. Uh, you know, we've had we all like a good debate between the four of us to, you know, settle yeah. on the right direction. And not once in almost nine years, have I ever heard you use the parent because I said so, you know, the, because this is my company ever? And that is, I, you know, I imagine I've never, you know, been a founder with a, an executive team. I imagine that that takes a lot of focus, dedication, humbling. And so I'd love to hear your perspective as a founder in how you balance the. This is what I want as a human because we all have our I want my way um, versus I am going to be able to step back and say, I've got a team that I trust and that, you know, we are collectively making decisions as an executive team because we don't have a CEO. We never have like there is you know, there's never been that one person at the top. It's kind of unofficially you because you own the company, but we do truly operate as a governing body and not people who are making a recommendation to, you know, this higher being, so to speak. And so I'd love to hear just your perspective in how you balance that, you know, what your thought process is there. Um Because I do think that this is a place that if there's any founders that are listening, where it's almost like a little bit of check yourself before you wreck yourself, because there are a lot of founders that become the downfall of their companies based on their egos. And you don't really have that.
2: Yeah. um, So there's a couple of things there. Um, One, I, I believe that I don't know everything. And so I try to surround myself with people who know more than me, especially in areas that I don't specialize in. And two, kind of overriding that goes counter to my first point, right? Why have people who are experts in other areas, and then oh well, do this anyways because I said so? Um, it it just seems kind of stupid to me. And the other, you know, kind of going to the emotional aspect of it. Um, I, I I tend to have a long-term view of, of things. And so even though I may prefer a particular decision in the short term, I know that in the long term, it's better for us to have a decision that gets consensus so that we end up in a better result. In general, I, I believe in collaboration wholeheartedly. Like the... I don't know, what's that phrase, Um, kind of a power of many over one. Um, I feel like we we can do better, we can arrive at better decisions, but also because we challenge ourselves, we uh, kind of not necessarily fight, but let's say battle for uh, an outcome that's that's best uh, for everyone, uh, not for one. Um, I I think that's just kind of how that operates. so i don't look at it as 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 me i look at it as us and because of that the idea of something for me specifically doesn't really cross my mind very often
1: okay and i think you know what i'm hearing in that is is a perfect segue into talking about hiring and the team because the fact that you have an executive team that you trust and that is experts in their own uh you know own lanes you're able to take that collective us approach and i think that really only happens when there is trust and confidence in the people on the team and you know if i look at you know the the 9 years that i've been here we've had ups and downs in terms of you know quality of the team turnover you know, we went through a period where it was just like, whoo! like it seemed like every other week there was someone leaving. And that was, you know, it's rough when you have to terminate someone or when you have someone that's great and they leave on their own. And, and you know, since then, we have made a lot of effort between the four of us to really attract and hire people into roles that they are naturally suited for. And we hire very differently. Um, And so I want to start by Max. I know you do a great job at kind of summarizing our approach to hiring. And this is probably one of the biggest lessons that I see that other people, when they hear about how we hire, you know, the level of retention that we have as such a small company, it's truly impressive. And so I'd like to have you first summarize for those listening, because most people have, you know, unless you've interviewed here, you have no insight into what that looks like in what is our approach to hiring? And how do we get that so
0: right? I can't take complete credit for it. Since I was proof of concept, Raleigh, <laughs> Raleigh conceived it. And I was the first person in under the that new approach. But uh, I will say I've added to and helped refine it over time. Um, the so the, I'll, I'll outline the general steps so the first thing is uh th- everybody knows this when we post a job we have we employ what we call hiring stories that was one of the things i built built that tells people what to expect um so transparency is huge for us um we start out with a quick survey screener for people who have resumes that align with the roles we're looking for and uh, that survey screener is done with our partner who does Uh, detailed uh, one-on-one interviews at a later stage. Basically, what it does is you spend two minutes and we will know if you definitely cannot pass our other screening. So it saves people time. Not just us, but candidates, because we all know the candidate experience can be horrific. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So after that, uh, we invite people to do a scenario and we're very sensitive about the scenario because we know there's a lot of free work asked for out there. So we always ask people to um, to work on a problem that we've already solved. So we can't use that work. We also ask them to cap their time at a certain amount so that we're not asking for too many hours. Um, And we a lot of our process is mutual. So we are also asking them to look at it because this is what the job will entail. And so that helps people look at it and go, this is not actually the work I want to do, or yay, this is me. And then we move on. Those who pass the scenario go on to that interview that I mentioned with our partner. And that screens for talents. we've talked about talent already as being really important to what we do. Um, Raleigh, I'll probably let you say more about that since this is, that was definitely the, the biggest impact that you've had on the whole process is that idea of talent.
3: Sure. Um, yeah, so just understanding, um, what someone can't be taught, but they're naturally good at, and that starts with us, uh, figuring out what are the demands of that role, so we have specific roles within the business. Um, you know, we have experts in our technology function that are experts at different, many different things in the work that we do. We have a client engagement group, that's a different job that is uh, organizing and, and um, keeping all the tasks and projects moving and on time. And, um, and that's a dynamic process. So it's a whole different kind of thinking. And then we have a strategy team, which is as close as we get to a sales team. And that's um, very commercial thinking, uh, uh, courageous uh, kind of personality. Um, and these things are not teachable. Uh, they are uh, straight talent and so we figure out those demands we figure out what questions can we ask that someone who is very talented would, would answer that question very differently than someone who's not um and i had there's more to that um but of how we know how to do that but um but that's how it works and um when someone can say yes in my job at tegerda i get to do what i do best every day um they're going to be way more productive. They're going to be more engaged. They're going to stay longer with us. Um, and it, it really just changes, you know, we talk about this all the time between the four of us, but it changes what we do in our role. Like we would be handling completely different problems. If we didn't focus on talent, we would, our problems would be different and not as fun, honestly. Uh, So we were, we're always working on things like, you know, I mean, it's all, you know, like one of our sort of out there things about flexible work is four day work weeks or, you know, like we we're solving these kinds of problems because we've got people who are very good at their job. And so, um, and not that we don't have other sort of common issues, uh, to work on. We do, but they are very few far between compared to what others in our roles are dealing with.
0: We round out that process with everyone, every candidate that passes that interview, getting to talk to this whole team, um, the executives. And then the final round is they get to talk to some of their potential peers and decide if those are people they'd wanna work with or not. Um, I could talk about our hiring process and all of the pieces around it for ages, because part of why we get the chance, as Raleigh said, to solve different problems is that we are so thoughtful about why we are doing all of these pieces, about getting in front of things that people are often dealing with re- um, afterwards, um, that there's there's so much thought and uh, principle and planning that goes into why we do our process that way that I could talk about it for ages. But um, if so, feel free to ask questions if there's something specific you want me to touch on, but I'm gonna stop there.
1: And I know, um... One of the things that is a core part of that process is also being proactively anti-bias. And so not focusing on the D word, uh, because, you know, that that is a whole different like it just we won't even we've already talked about that. But just really removing some of those common biases from the process. Um, And so I'd also I get asked that question a lot because. Sometimes people want to really make sure that they are attracting different types of talent um, and removing those biases from the process, but they don't actually understand what that really looks like. And I know, Max, like I've had some aha moments from things that you've said about, you know, job descriptions or, you know, where we're posting and things like that. And so I'd love to hear you, you know, share some of your advice for those leaders who. Are not in HR, but are trying to do their part in removing some of the bias from the hiring process?
0: Yeah, the first thing I'm going to say is probably going to be pretty unpopular, but it's the most important for uh, being actively anti-oppression in the workplace, and that's pay transparency. There is no more straightforward, simple way to ensure uh, a level of equity and equality without having transparent compensation so uh, we start that in our hiring process that is in the job description in detail how our compensation is structured and it does not vary outside of specific criteria that are very easy to follow and that are very again very transparent so not every individual has exactly the same salary because not every individual is exactly the same but we have bases uh, we do bumps, which is a whole other, we're different in our compensation too, and <laughs> but uh, how we describe that, the bumps are also in categories that are easy for people to follow. Um, the next thing would be um, the decision pivot points. So the, I described our first three steps, and those first three steps mean that uh, no one at Tegrita has seen a face that they could possibly add bias to their evaluation. Uh, we don't know much about these people aside from that they have passed an initial screening and what they, the work that they have put into uh, their, uh, their scenario. Um, so we do often include videos because we're online. So we will have seen that at that stage, and that's the last piece. Um, but our interviewer at the next stage also does things by phone. So they have not seen these people either. And we consistently interrogate our questions for are they introducing a bias? Are they introduce, are we asking for things that favor certain populations? So, for example, one of the things that I was really strict on that allows people with disabilities or certain responsibilities at home uh, is that we do not require travel, even for the roles where we used to think it was necessary. We will say it's preferred and that accommodations can be made. Because if we've learned, I think the world has learned, we can do a lot remotely. (laughs) So um, also the fact that we offer true remote work, that's who we are. We don't have an office. Uh, That opens up possibilities to populations who do not have access to this kind of work. Either because they of geographically where they are located, that there are not employers near them or because of uh, what their life or their identities entail that that makes it impossible.
1: Yeah, I can remember a while back having a candidate from Mississippi um, and in the conversation it was, you know the fact that we were remote was a huge deal because there's not these same kind of technical roles in the small town in Mississippi in which they lived. And, you know, if you think about like a lot of the population in Mississippi is, you know, lower income, uh, generally minorities, you know, it is a population that doesn't have the same just opportunity based on geography because, you know, not a state where a lot of big companies are like, oh, yeah, let's put our corporate headquarters in Mississippi. Um, And so it is things like that that I do think really goes a long way in. You know taking that stuff out yeah, yeah
3: i can add to the anti-bias thing just to, a little bit just to say because sometimes anti-bias takes on some very common categories which i think a lot of which um, max's kind of breakdown covers covers that kind of stuff like who you are your background your privilege um But there's also uh, some subtle things that we do in that process. You know, like we don't we don't say, hey, we're not going to look at your resume unless you've gone to a four year college or, you know, we we do things like that. And then even more subtle. uh, I see it every day. I'm sure you guys do, too, of, well, they've got to be a cultural fit. And while. And a lot of people will say, the cultural fit, I'll decide when I talk to them. And really, unfortunately, even though they would argue with me, many of them, many of these people that would say this, they would argue that I'm wrong. Um, they're actually saying, are they like me? You know, do I like the way they talk? Um, oh, they're a good fit, you know. And, and honestly, a lot of the cultural fit, which we know from doing this for many years now, is a talent thing you know, our culture has hundred percent remote Well, that has its own kind of thing to it about being independent and self, uh, self-driven and, and, um, you don't need someone standing over you telling you what to do next. And, you know, that kind of stuff, there's, uh, you know, some things about Tegrita that are important to us in terms of values that are really kind of connected to talent. So we figured that out. in our structured interview, which is, you know, later in the process um, to decide whether this person not only can do the job, but can they do it here? Um, And that's different than I want to see if they're a cultural fit. Let's see if I like them. And that's, um, I think a mistake. And that's, you know, you get, and you'll see that too. Like, I think it's, I think we could all have a, have like a, we can make a game of it. Let's go to some (laughs) companies. And look at how all their people look the same, right? And that's not a, that's not coincidence. It's because they went through an interview process where they want people that look like them, that act like them.
1: Same interests as them.
3: Yeah. So there's some, some of that we clear up, you know, we want to make sure they can do the work and do it here. And then they talk to us. Um, We handle that and we, we do, and, we, and by that point, we have kind of look out for, you know, like, well, here's a couple of things that are not perfect, but they're good enough to work here. We already know before we talk to them at the stage that the ELT interviews them, we already know they can do the job and they can do it here. And so it's more of like little things, especially if we have more than one candidate that made it that far. And we sometimes don't. Only one out of three thousand people make it. <laughs> But, um, but yeah, so that I, I think that's a, the fact that we don't do a, I like you interview is, is pretty, pretty big deal that, um, you know, I think, I think a lot of people, if I told them that they would say, oh, we do that too. um, And they, that's, they don't.
1: Yeah, I can remember early in my career when I was, you know, first becoming a part of the hiring process, you know, not as the hiring manager, but, you know, as one of the stakeholders that was doing interviews. One of the things that I was told as sort of a litmus test of if I'd want this person was the, would I have a beer with them? I mean, I don't actually drink beer, but it's that, you know, it's that notion. And for some roles, that person is probably going to have that personality. Like if you think about for our strategy team, like the natural personality that comes with those talents often is like, oh yeah, they'd be great to you know have dinner with or whatever. But if we think about Mike's team and the technologist, um, those talents aren't always the same outgoing extrovert like, oh, I want to hang out with them. But they're absolutely amazing. And so, you know, that was one thing that I really had to learn um, is that it, you know, it doesn't matter if I want to hang out with them. Um, You know, maturing as a leader is like, can they really do this job and be happy doing it and be effective doing it and add value to the organization and, you know, are they nice people? I mean, because like we have a, a don't be an asshole rule. Like that's our general, you know, company yeah. policy and how we treat each other is don't be an asshole. So, you know, it's not that you want people who are unfriendly or jerks working for you, but it it doesn't matter if you want to have a beer with them.
0: Um, right. Yeah. I want to expand on that a little bit and go back to a little, go back to what I was talking about before that putting that on there smashes apart those, uh, social requirements that we add up to professionalism in a lot of right. places is mm-hmm. someone's ability to conduct themselves on a video interview with pe- four people they've never met before who all have C in front of their titles is not the best litmus test of <laughs> someone's ability to do a job, right. <laughs> but that is very much the broken system that we have. So. By not, we don't, you know, we don't show up to those interviews, like Raleigh's in a t-shirt right now. We don't show up to those interviews in anything that we wouldn't wear in a normal day. So, and we don't ask people to dress for the job they want because no one's looking at them here either. <laughs> like, so there's a lot of these places of whether it's personability um, or certain personality traits or someone's ability to fake it long enough to get through a, an interview process. Um, We, our hiring process and how we work removes a lot of those things that makes this a place possible for people to work, possible for people to get hired regardless of their background and what they've had access to up to that point.
1: Um, And I want to shift gears a little bit. The last sort of uh, topic that I want to, you know, dive into is what I think is super sexy, which is process. Um, and, you know, Mike, I I will start with you um, because I know, you know, in the early days of the company, there was a lot of figure it out as we go along and not a lot of process or rigor behind the way things were done. Um, and as we grew and took on more, you know, clients and the team got bigger, that became a necessity and, and that has evolved over time. So I'd like your thoughts on how has process shaped the organization?
2: I feel like I can draw a process flow diagram to outline <laughs> and answer you. Um, so I, I would actually say that there's always been process It's just it's, it's always been siloed or not not communicated or not um, repeatable, right? So how do you scale process? So before we didn't have scalable process. Now we've learned how to make it scalable, how to make it repeatable, um, teachable, and uh, consistently applied. Like consistency and being able to do the same thing uh, over and over again is critical to what we do. And that's impossible without process. Like it's an, and and it also stifles growth and stifles scale, right? So if you have a process that is uh, understood by everyone who needs to follow it, then everyone can follow. Right? If if you have the proper tools to um, know where this process is and how to use it, then you can do so. But if you have a you know a, a process that lives on your hard drive, um, or on your desktop somewhere or in your mind, sure, you have your own personal process, but that's kind of where it you know, stops. So having something that's um, kind of reusable and, and shared and um, uh, again, scalable, my favorite word, um, <laughs> is, is, is critical.
1: And so Raleigh, I want to redirect Mike's answer to you because I know exactly what he's saying in terms of repeatable, scalable, you know, the the operational rigor, those things have become a competitive differentiator for us. Mm -hmm. Um, And you in driving the revenue team um, and, you know, how we're going to market, how we're talking to our customers and prospects from, you know, the highest strategic level, how have you seen process shape the business?
3: Um, I feel like without the process, and we're talking about process of how we, you know, something, something that seems so simple, like a client asks us to do something, well, now there's a flow of work, as we call it, to take that request and turn it into action uh, and deliverables and all that and revenue essentially for us um, f- to like, you know, right before we hopped on this of uh, how do we scope this work and are we following that process and, and so that the client knows that, like, hey, if they want something new, this is how it works. We go through these three steps and then we always have this and you can always make a decision. And, and so the process has all these kind of different um, flavors. And I feel like from where we were to where we are now, um, the business is very um, layered. There's a lot to what we do, which for clients means they can feel safer They can feel like there's more value with Tegreta. Like they're not just, they don't just take my voicemail and then start working. Like there's a process to how things get done. And then if something goes wrong, it's easy to go back into the process and say, where did we go wrong here? And so there becomes this like depth to how we compete with others in our space. There's some depth to the value that we bring clients. there's depth for our internal team. So they don't feel like they're just randomly doing things. They feel like, hey, this is how I work. This is this is the track I stay on because I know that the other function is on this track. And so here's where we meet and I'm, I don't need to worry about it. So it brings like control and comfort and engagement to everyone on the team. So I feel like the processes that we have are certainly um, can, we can prove that they help and that's really smart and all these things. but reality is the, the true power of it is how it affects us, how it affects our clients, and how it keeps us keeps us going. I really feel like a lot of what we've built in, in Brandy, you're the head of all that, you know, keeps keeps us like there's not a lot of chance of us of slipping backwards. We might stop for a little bit as we're trying to get our footing, but we don't feel like we're always starting over from zero. Like we've built up all this foundation and I feel like that's that's what it is from my perspective as a CRO.
1: Yeah, and Max, I want to pose a similar question to you because you're kind of my counterpart in developing a lot of our processes. And you know, I feel like when I'm talking to other executives, I am... Always touting the fact that process is a competitive differentiator, and you know it's not always uh, well received or believed. And you know, you leading the client engagement team, who you know handles a lot of like our client-facing process. I'd love to hear your take as well on why spending the time putting the operational rigor in place is so important for an organization to be able to be, you know, a leader in their space.
0: Yeah. I think, well, listening to everyone talk, I think calling it process almost feels like undermining what we do. Like we are engineering complex solutions. Um, to problems that slow businesses down and sometimes kill them entirely. Uh I would say, you know, I kind of want to equate it to a tight hope, safety net. It's that without that safety net, without that thing to fall back on, um, it's really easy. And of course, the, the safety net being the processor, the the complex solution we've engineered. Um, it is very possible for things to go very wrong very quickly and before you can stop it. And You know, I would say a lot of the places I've worked, uh, the common thing, because it's the easy thing, because it's the thing people are given resources like time for, is to have band-aid pieces of things that solve individual problems, but rarely are are the pieces connected. That is our strength, in my opinion, is that we don't just say, here's a template for this particular task. We look at where that template lives in the whole life cycle and who it's serving and who it's for. And we build something that can be applied to different use cases that fits how we work in the Tegrita way and what we're delivering. And it there's so much complexity to delivering on um, who we are and how we work uh, that requires uh, that whole ecosystem and that's why i I've started. I've started thinking of it more as engineering than process.
1: Uh, I I love it. Um, so as we wrap up, um, I want to ask each of you: What is the biggest lesson that you've learned as a leader since you've been at Tegredo? And I will start to give you guys a chance to think. Um, The biggest lesson that I have learned for me really has been around giving people space to be their authentic, amazing self. Um, I am a bit of a control freak, and I recognize that. And I think one of the hardest pieces of feedback that I ever got as a leader was when someone complained to another executive that I didn't give them space to think, that I was always giving really specific direction and expected that they just followed. And that was really hard for me to hear because to me, I thought I was, you know, helping by giving specific direction. But as a leader, you have to, and, you know, we've all gone through some some leadership coaching together and the um, ask, ask, tell, ignore approach is really key of knowing when to tell someone what to do, knowing when to ask them questions so that they can arrive at their own approach, and also knowing when to just shut up and give them space to fully figure it out on their own. And that's probably been the biggest evolution for me as a leader is not consistently leading with tell and allowing people to show up and be amazing and be amazing in their own right, even if it's not the way I would have done it. And so it's a a bit of personal growth um, that I think that there's a lot of leaders out there that can also stand to learn that lesson as well. So mine is around leadership.
0: Um, There we go, we'll go to (laughs) Matt. So I came into Tegrita hoping that it was possible to have a more humane workplace. So Tegrita promised to be different, and I came in with the hope it was possible. Um, I now have learned that not only is it possible, but it is more successful. It is easier when you have those intentions because you are not, like you said, I can sleep at night with our decisions but also the to sort of steal your words really the problems that we're trying to solve are not a constant lack of a sense of exploited as ex- being exploited from our team yep and that is a very very deliberate way of saying the vast majority of management challenges that other managers have at other places yeah. so it's not just possible to have a humane workplace it's better it's more successful
1: i agree completely all right raleigh mike who's gonna go next
2: um i can go um so my, my perspective i guess maybe is a little different um and it's really more about change and how different things are than maybe what you would expect at different stages of uh growth or evolution or just the journey as i originally said and how it is like change is a constant right so things are always changing but what will the business look like with those changes is always going to be a surprise you're always (laughs) you're always going to be surprised and you you might think you know but you know you don't and then um you, you learn more. So it just kind of one one of the biggest sort of joys for me of, of this journey is just the learning that happens along the way. Uh, it's it's kind of amazing.
1: And then Raleigh, you get to wrap it up for us. What is your biggest lesson learned?
3: Uh, my biggest lesson, which I've told Friends and family about is how much more I can accomplish with people who are good at things I'm not good at. So, with working with the three of you has been eye opening. I have, as all three of you know, uh, intense talent on certain things. That's it. I don't, I can't, I am not well rounded. Uh, And so, I've learned. how great it is. Um, And I'm probably pretty lucky. I'm sure some people don't ever, ever get the chance um, to have the three of you with your very, you know, specific talents that complement mine. And man, I feel like I can do so many things that I just can't do without you. So uh, that's my biggest learning from being on the team.
1: Awesome. As I say, it gives me all the warm and fuzzies. Um, Well, I really appreciate you all joining me. Um, I hope that everyone listening has been able to take away lessons on leadership and growing a business and hiring and all of the things because, you know, when you are an executive especially at the c level there's so many layers to what we have to do that go beyond just the practice of our discipline and the functions that we're in and it's hard um you know there's there's tough decisions there's you know priorities and and focuses and and all of the things and so being able to have a strong team like we have and to be able to share some of these lessons, uh, I hope that it, it gives inspiration and insight to everyone that is listening. Um, so thank you all so much for joining me. Uh, and thanks to everyone who is joining us. I can't believe we are at the end, but we will see you next time. You've been listening to Revenue Rehab with your host, Brandy Starr. Your session is now over, but the learning has just begun. Join our mailing list and catch up on all our shows at RevenueRehab.live. We're also on Twitter and Instagram at Revenue Rehab. This concludes this week's session. We'll see you next week.